We're going to be in Numbers 14 tonight, so if you will turn with me there. It's a long chapter. I'm not going to go verse by verse necessarily, so I'm going to read through it before we begin. Numbers 14. Numbers 14. I'm reading from the CSB. Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if we had only died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who scattered out the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community, The land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. While the whole community threatened to stone them, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites in the tent of meeting. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them. Then I will make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. But Moses replied to the Lord, The Egyptians will hear about it, for by your strength you brought up this people from them. They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, how you, Lord, are seen face to face, how your cloud stands over them, and how you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people with a single blow, the nations that have heard of your fame will declare, since the Lord wasn't able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them, he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. So now, may my Lord's power be magnified, just as you have spoken. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bring the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please, Pardon the iniquity of this people, in keeping with the greatness of your faithful love, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. The Lord responded, I have pardoned them as you requested, yet as surely as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tested me these ten times and did not obey me, will ever see the land I swore to give their fathers. None of those who have despised me will see it. But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit and has remained loyal to me, I will bring him into the land where he has gone, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the lowlands, turn back tomorrow and head for the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, How long must I endure the evil community that keeps complaining about me? I have heard the Israelites' complaints that they have made against me. Tell them, as surely as I live, this is the Lord's declaration, I will do to you exactly as I heard you say. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, all of you who are registered in the census, the entire number of you twenty years or more, because you have complained about me. I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. 
I will bring your children whom you said would become plunder into the land you rejected, and they will enjoy it. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the penalty for your acts of unfaithfulness until all your corpses lie scattered in the wilderness. You will bear the consequences of your iniquity 40 years based on the number of the 40 days you scattered the land, a year for each day. You will know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. I swear that I will do this to the entire evil community that has conspired against me. They will come to an end in the wilderness and they will die. So the men Moses sent out to scout the land and who returned and incited the whole entire community to complain about him by spreading a negative report about the land. Those men who spread the negative report about the land were struck down by the Lord. Only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, remained alive of those men who went out to scout the land. When Moses reported these words to the Israelites, the people were overcome with grief. They got up the next morning and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Let's go to the place that the Lord promised, for we were wrong. But Moses responded, Why are you going against the Lord's command? It won't succeed. Don't go, because the Lord is not among you, and you will be defeated by your enemies. The Amalekites and Canaanites are right in front of you, and you will fall by their sword. The Lord won't be with you since you have turned from following him. But they dared to go up on the ridge of the hill country, even though the Ark of the Lord's Covenant and Moses did not leave the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in the part of the hill country came down, attacked them, and routed them as far as Hormah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word you have given to us. Thank you that your word does not return to you void. Thank you that uh, everything that was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through it and endurance and encouragement. I pray that tonight your word would be clear. I pray that we would worship you, that I would worship you in preaching and everyone here would worship you in listening so that you may be glorified because that's primarily why we want to gather here. We love you. We thank you for Christ and in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text is a turning point, I would say, in the Pentateuch. Uh, There's a lot here, um, but beyond all else, I think what this text emphasizes is the importance of belief in the Lord. Uh, Israel did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief in God. And I think it's a helpful illustration for us in the church that you can be as close to the Lord, you can see his miracles, uh, and yet still perish because you lack faith and because you have rebelled and because you don't truly repent. I think beyond all this, this text encourages us to hold on with full assurance to the Lord's promises. But before we, we dive into the text, a little bit of background. The Pentateuch is all related, all five books. It's like a, a one continuous story. Israel, uh, Israel as a people really starts with God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. God promises, uh, I will make you a great nation, I will give you a land, um, and you will become a blessing for all the nations. Then in Exodus, God actually redeems this people from slavery, from bondage in Egypt, and he displays his power over the Egyptian gods uh, and brings them out and then enters a covenant with them. At the end of Exodus, you have this beautiful picture where God gives them the law, and then he comes down into the tabernacle, and his glory is among them. Uh, And then in Leviticus, God further gives them instruction. How, How do you dwell with the holy God among your midst? Uh, and this law, it, it sets Israel apart from the other nations. And all the while God's doing this, he's leading them into the land he promised Abraham. And that's where the book of Numbers comes in. Numbers up to this chapter, uh, 
seems almost like a, like a victory march, especially in the first 10 chapters. Uh, you're, you're pretty confident as a reader that Israel is going to enter the land no problem. Throughout the first 10 chapters, you have this phrase repeated, Israel did as the Lord instructed Moses. They have a heart of obedience. They're, they're listening to the Lord's instruction and trusting in Moses, the leader God put over them. But in chapter 11, you start seeing a, a change. Um, previously, there's obedience, but now grumbling starts to come in. They start grumbling about circumstances, and then they start complaining about food. And finally, uh, Miriam and Aaron think, you know, why is Moses the authority here? You know, why can't he share the authority? So, but those seeds of rebellion in the first um, uh, four, 13 chapters of Numbers, they come to full bloom in the text before us. Israel is literally at the edge of the land the Lord promised, and Moses sends out scouts. For 40 days, they look into the land, and they bring back a report. And at the end of Numbers 13, they give their report. The land is great, uh, just as the Lord promised, but the people living in the land are stronger than us. Uh, and in Numbers 13, 32, it says, all these scouts except for Caleb and Joshua spread a negative report among the Israelites. And so that sort of leads us to where we are now. This is a turning point in the history of Israel up to this point. Um, and it's actually a text that the Psalms, the prophets, and even the New Testament writers look back to as an example of unbelief, as an example of rebellion, as a warning for us here today. Okay, Obviously, this is a very um, big text. It took quite a few minutes to read through it. So what I want to do is we're going to look at each of the main characters of this story and how they relate to God. We're going to start with Israel, how Israel relates to God in this passage, then Caleb and Joshua, and finally Moses. Um, Israel's going to be the longest because a lot happens to them in this passage. So let, let's start back up uh, in chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, 1 through 4, we see Israel's fear. Israel hears this report, uh, and what's their reaction? They immediately break down. If you look at the first four verses, uh, it says they're crying loudly, they're weeping into the night. Uh, the word for weeping means lamenting. It's, it's a bitter weeping. It's we're doomed. They're lifting up their voice and crying. And the text makes it clear that this isn't a minority of the people. It says the whole community, the entire congregation, they're responding in fear to the spies' report. Um, they've been traveling all this way from Egypt. They're right on the edge of the promised land. Basically, the spies are saying, forget about it. There's no way we can take this land. Uh, the cities are fortified. The people are strong. Uh, they, the spies even use some fun, colorful language. Uh, they say the people of the land are going to devour them, and they compare Israel to grasshoppers. So basically, the spies come back and say, the land's good, but if you try to enter the promised land, you're going to get eaten for breakfast. You're going to be squashed like a bug. And so Israel hears that, and they are afraid. Uh, but what's interesting is they don't just stop at fear. In verse 2 and following, uh, the fear st uh, starts them questioning the Lord. In verse 2, it says, Israel started complaining and murmuring. And if you've been reading the Pentateuch up to this point, uh, red flags should be going off, because this word murmuring is a, something that shows up multiple times when you know sin is coming. In Exodus, three times murmuring showed up, and Israel is complaining, and then God judges them because they end up sinning. So Israel has gone from fear to murmuring, and then they ask this question, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? So you see the progression, fear, um, 
then they start murmuring among themselves, and then they start questioning God. And this, this is astounding, and God's going to call them out for it. God has led them through the Red Sea, fed them with manna from heaven and fresh water from a rock. He's built a house among them. He's dwelt among them. But Israel now says, God, you had a plan all along to secretly destroy us. Uh, you had uh, false motives. You just brought us out of slavery from Egypt to destroy us here in the, in the wilderness. Um, and in their fear, Israel does not remember who God is and what he's done. And you think about this, and it's a very accurate depiction of fear, right? When you're afraid and let fear take over, you tend to lose your grasp on reality, and especially spiritual reality. Um, you, you don't think clearly. You forget who God is and what he's done. Israel should not be asking this question. God, multiple times up to this point, has told them what is going to happen. Uh, let's turn back to Exodus 6 real quick. Because um, I think it's a helpful. It's helpful to see what God's plan is. Exodus six verses two through eight. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, "I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord." I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of Israelites, whom the Egyptians were forcing to work as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring them out of the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue them from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of your forced labor, labor of the Egyptians. I will give you the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So twice in this passage, there's a lot here. Uh, he's, he's reiterating his promise that he made to Abraham that he's going to give him the land. And twice he says, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to bring you out of slavery to Egypt. And I'm going to fulfill my promise. Um, it's part of God's covenant. It's part of his promise. Um, you can turn back to Numbers 14. Um, so the problem here in, in Numbers 14 is not with God. At no point did God promise anything to the Israelites except blessing, and he didn't leave that a secret. He told them what he would do. But as, so often, as is so often the case, the external circumstances, the, uh, the fear of the people in the land, the immediate fear, is causing Israel to be blinded to the promises of God. It's blinded them to who they should really be afraid of. At this point, Israel's afraid of the people in the land. But who should they have actually been afraid of? The God who is a consuming fire, who's dwelling among them currently. The God who single-handedly destroyed the Egyptians in the Red Sea. The same God who recently, fairly recently, struck down Nadab and Abihu. That's who they should be fearing. But at a human level, Israel's looking out and seeing the people in the land, and they're terrified because they think they're going to have defeat and death. Fear affects our behavior, and that's what's happening in our text. The people inhabiting the land are bigger in Israel's eyes than God. And just a quick survey of this text, look at the multiple sins that come out of this seemingly logical fear of the people of the land. Uh, this misplaced fear leads to 
overwhelming emotion, questioning God, forgetting God's redemption. Uh, you're gonna, we, when we read, you saw that it hardened their heart towards Joshua and Caleb, who called them to repentance. I think, I think this is a good example of why the Bible can say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, because a lot of your behavior is determined by what you fear, what you actually fear. Israel right now is fearing the wrong things, and I think uh, there's a lot of circumstances currently with COVID, with the state of our nation, where we can be very tempted to act out of a misplaced fear. Instead of fearing the Lord, we're fearing our circumstances, just like Israel is here. I think a, a point of application for us is, uh, don't just ask, what do I believe? Also ask, what are you fearing? Whether you fear the Lord or fear man will be seen in your behavior. And it's pretty obvious when we look at Israel in this passage, they are terrified and it's leading them to sin further against the Lord. As if accusing God wasn't enough, Israel goes a step further. Uh, verses 3 through 4, they say, you know what, Egypt was better. Let's, let's get a new leader, let's turn the ship around and go back to where we came from, because God's obviously abandoned us. So Israel is so afraid of their circumstances, they're saying we would rather be slaves than continue forward with the Lord into the land that he's promised. And you might be thinking, Israel is massively overreacting here. They are, but that's just how fear works. It takes you to extremes. It forces you to focus on your external circumstances. And Israel is so afraid at this point that they'd rather be anywhere but here. Uh, and so in addition to accusing God, they're not. this is just an accusation at this point. They're ready to act. They're ready to get going. Um, they are going to appoint a leader and get out of there. So in four verses, we've gone from hearing a report, fear, talking amongst themselves, questioning God, to straight-up rebellion very quickly. Uh, and they want to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. It shows how very little they appreciate God's redemption. And we'll, we'll look at Caleb and Joshua's call to repentance in, in a little bit, but they, they get told, like, no, like, this is wrong, you're rebelling, have courage, have faith in the Lord's promise. But how do they respond? Look at verse 10. The whole community threatened to stone them. So Israel is so convinced of this, this, this story they've built out of their fear that they're not listening to Caleb and Joshua who are reminding them of the Lord's promise. And instead, they just want to kill them. They just want to silence anyone who is speaking out contrary to what the majority thinks. And I, I think you can, you can infer from the text, if God had not shown up, as he does in verse 10, uh, Joshua and Caleb probably would have kept speaking, and the Israelites probably would have stoned them. That's how far they've gotten. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to be called back to God's promise. But God does show up. And the text says the Lord spoke to Moses, and God gives his decisive take on this situation. And I think it's very significant. How does God interpret Israel's rebellion? Verse 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me, despite all the signs I have performed among them? Let's actually stop there. So you have two parallel statements in the text. Uh, how long will the people despise God, and how long will the people not trust in God? God looks at Israel's situation, their fear, their rebellion, and says, Israel's problem is a lack of belief, 
a lack of faith. What are the people not believing about God? Well, they're not believing that he's powerful enough to fulfill his promises. Israel thinks the problem is the strength of the nations around them, but God says it isn't. God says Israel's problem right now is their wrong theology, their wrong view of God. And you read the first line, you know, uh, how long will these people despise me? And you ask, you know, how have they despised God? The next line gives the answer, by their unbelief. God says they have no excuse in uh, the coming verses, um, no excuse for the lack of belief because of all the signs Israel has seen. And this is a very good illustration of something Pastor Bill constantly says from this pulpit, that unbelief is not an intellectual thing. Israel had so much to go off of. They were living in the presence of God, and God looks and says, they still don't believe me. They are despising me. It's interesting to contrast this with uh, Exodus 14. You don't have to turn with me there if you don't want to. But in Exodus 14, verses 29 through 31, this is right after God destroys the Egyptians who are following Israel through the Red Sea, wipes them out, you know, completely delivers them. And in verse 29, this is Israel's response back then. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on the dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and to the left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and, the Isra- and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. Completely different reaction than what we see in Numbers 14. Israel crosses the Red Sea. They see what God's done. He saved them. He's defeated the Egyptians. And what was their response? The proper response. It was seeing what the Lord did, fearing the Lord, believing in him, and following the leader that God appointed. And if you go back to Numbers 14, that's the opposite is happening in the text. Uh, Instead, now the Israelites are fearing the nations, not the Lord. They aren't believing God, and they want to get rid of his servant Moses and appoint their own leader and get back to Egypt. And God looks at this and says, the problem here is Israel is despising me. They are not believing me. Some translations have spurn or reject me. And I think it is essential in this text and for the rest of the Pentateuch and really the rest of Scripture to understand what's happening here. God calls their fearful response an act of unbelief. Step back and think about the judgment that we read later in the chapter. Israel is going to wander in the wilderness 40 years. They're not going to enter the promised land. A whole generation is going to die. Why? Because of a battle they lost? because of complaining about food. All of the judgments that God's going to give them here is connected simply to Israel failing to trust God to fulfill his promises. That's what God says. They are not believing in him. God is even prepared in verse 12. He says, I will strike them with a plague and destroy them. God is prepared to destroy this whole group of people simply for unbelief because they're not trusting him. And he he even says, you know, Israel's lack of faith in God is equivalent to rejecting God. And you, this paints a picture of how important faith and belief in the Lord is, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The righteous will live by faith, walk by faith, not by sight. It's all throughout Scripture, uh, from Abraham all the way to Revelation. 
Israel had a promise that God would bring them into the land. They had seen the power of God displayed. They, had, they knew God brought them out of slavery. So why are they so fearful? Why are they rebelling? Why do they want to kill Joshua and Caleb? Unbelief, lack of faith in the promise of God. And if I can stop here for a little bit of application, this text, for me at least, is so insightful for understanding sin. You know, Israel, you read the first four verses, it talks about Israel's fear and rebellion, but God immediately jumps to their problem is unbelief. That's the fundamental battle and issue. God is a promise-making God, uh, and he doesn't ask us to fulfill the promises he's made. You know, think of Abraham, right? It's an unconditional promise on himself. But he does ask us to have faith in those promises. And as I, as I was meditating on, the, on this text, something that stood out to me in, in my own life is mistrust in the Lord is never a neutral thing. Um, a lot of times in my own life, I can treat trust in the Lord as something somewhat optional, uh, something I can have or not have depending on my circumstances. Um, and, you know, you and I can even talk about it casually, right? Like, a, situa- a situation or trial comes up and we say, you know, oh, I just need to trust the Lord, or, you know, I'm struggling to trust the Lord here. Um, it's, it's almost like we treat trust in the Lord as a part of the Christian life, an extra part, instead of the essential part of the Christian life. Trusting the Lord's promises is essential, especially when things get difficult. And it's so easy to have a superficial view of our problems, and we end up with superficial solutions. Um, in my own life, when I face a problem, I often jump to, how can I fix this problem fast as possible? Uh, or even when faced with, with sin, how quickly we can say, uh, what can I do to stop feeling guilty ASAP? Like, I just don't want to feel bad about myself right now. But you have to actually, in order to get to the root of our, our problems, we have to start with, what promises of God am I not trusting? What am I actually functionally believing in here? What promises of God, if I had trusted, would I have avoided this sin or this situation? And that's what Israel needed to do. That's what Joshua and Caleb called them to do. Uh, They wanted Israel to say, wait a minute, we're fearful because we forgot God's promise. He promised to give us this land. What are we afraid of? And, you know, you might say, oh, Adam, you know, we don't have such a specific, you know, promise that Israel had in this situation. Uh, You know, God promised the land that he would defeat the nations. You know, we don't have a promise like that. But as you read scripture, especially in the New Testament, God bathes his people in promises. Uh, If you read the New Testament, we have currently today just as many promises, if not more, than the nation of Israel had at this point in Numbers 14. We are promised if we suffer with Christ, we will reign with him. We're promised if we're faithless, he is faithful because he can't deny himself. We're promised all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We're promised we're going to reign with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. We're promised that the sufferings this time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we're promised God will give us everything we need for life and godliness. Promise after promise after promise. And I think a lot of your problems, a lot of my problems in our lives come simply because we aren't believing in the Lord's promises. Just like Israel, they're going to wander 40 years in the wilderness simply because they did not believe and trust in the Lord's promise, even though God's proven himself time and time again. So next time you're faced with a sin, uh, a difficulty, a trial, Maybe the first question you and I should ask is, uh, what are you actually believing? 
what are you trusting in here? We all, if I asked any of you, if you asked me, of course, we'd say we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, we believe in Scripture. But when things get difficult, when we fall into sin, what do we actually believe and what beliefs are we acting on? Uh, when when uh, you're having difficulties in your marriage and you feel bitter or discouraged, what promises aren't you trusting? When your career or your school grades aren't going the way you wanted, uh, what promises do you need to run to? When you're single and you can't seem to find contentment as you wait on a spouse, what promises in God's word are you not trusting? Because the Bible says God is sovereign from beginning to end, and we need to stop and consider God's promises and then have faith in them. We cannot control our circumstances, but in our circumstances, we can choose to trust in the Lord's promises, and he has made many. Unbelief is not a neutral issue. It's not here. It's not anywhere in Scripture. Personally, as I've studied this text, my prayers have become more and more, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. It's so essential to the Christian life. So back to Numbers 14, God says, I'm going to send a plague, strike them down, and create a mightier nation than them. Um, that phrase isn't surprising. Israel hasn't remembered the plagues that God sent to Egypt, uh, so Israel's going to be hit by a plague, right? God is threatening to treat Israel just as he treated Egypt, uh, God's enemy in the book of Exodus. Why? Because Israel at this point, through their unbelief, is behaving like God's enemy. And what's interesting is God says, I can still keep my promise. I'm not even dependent on this nation. And if you're reading this, you might think, well, if God, if God destroys Israel, well, then boom, you just proved, you know, he proved yourself wrong. God's sort of in a pickle here. He wants to judge Israel, but he still has to remain faithful to his promise. But God says he's not going to be manipulated. Uh, I could destroy this nation and still fulfill my promise. It's not a difficult thing for God. He just says it. But God does not destroy them. We'll look a little later at Moses. But essentially, God listens to Moses' requests and does not destroy them and gives Israel mercy. Not because they're faithful, because God is faithful. But there's still consequences. He swears by himself that Israel will not enter the land in this generation. And there's three ironies in God's judgment. Uh, The first one, in in verse 2, Israel says, If only we had died in the wilderness. Well, you know, uh, God... uh, decides, well, in judgment, you're not going to uh, live. You're, you're going to die in the wilderness, right? Um, Israel didn't want to enter the promised land, so God gives them what they wanted, no promised land. Um, verse 28, um, then there's another irony. This is the beginning of the wilderness wanderings of Israel, 40 years, one for each day. You know, they had 40 days to see the land, and so now they're going to have 40 years, one year for each day, where they're not going to see the land. And then verse 34, I will read that. You will bear the consequences of your iniquity 40 years based on the number of 40 days that you scattered out each, a year for each day. You will know my displeasure. Another ironic statement, Israel says our children will be plunder in this land, but God actually says that your children are going to enjoy the land. You're, you're, you're going to die in the wilderness. Your children are going to enjoy the land. The children are going to be given the land for plunder. And God is certainly going to bring about this this judgment. He swears several times by himself, as surely as I live, as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, you know, this will happen. The last thing, God deals with the false 
uh, prophets, if you will, the, the scouts who came in and said, we can't take the land. Um, they spread a negative report. In verses 36 to 38, twice it says they spread a negative report. And what happens? God judges them. So the question is, after all this judgment, after God uh, declares the, their fundamental issue is unbelief, he gives them judgment. You know, you're afraid your children won't enter. Well, you're actually going to be judged and not enter the land yourself. Did Israel get it? Did Israel get it? And you start in verse 39, and you think, there, there's hope, because Israel is sorrowful again. It says Israel is overcome with grief, and that's totally understandable. God has just pronounced a pretty, pretty harsh judgment for their sinful actions, and it's, it's pretty bad. And it even says, uh, let, they say to, to Moses, let's go to the place the Lord promised, for we were wrong. They even acknowledge they're wrong. They have sorrow, and they acknowledge uh, what they did the day before is wrong, and, and they seem to be on the right track, right? Um, that would pass as repentance for, for most people today. You know, you feel sorry, you admit you're wrong. You know, what, what do they do next? They say, let's, let's go. Let's go back to the land the Lord promised. To Israel, it makes sense. They were wrong, they feel bad about it, but they still have a right to go to the land, right? Why not forget about yesterday, God? You know, uh, God won't mind. I feel sorry. Uh, and the question you and I have to ask here is, is Israel truly repenting? Or do they have a superficial view of their sin? In 2 Corinthians, we saw that great verse, for godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. So uh, let's see what type of grief Israel ultimately has. They, they take their plan to Moses, and Moses clarifies the problem with Israel's plan. He says, why are you going against the Lord's command? It won't succeed. Moses looks at Israel's plan and says, that's just further disobedience. Why? Uh, rather than accepting the punishment and discipline of the Lord, Israel's trying to have a quick fix. They don't like the consequences of their actions. And at no point in the passage Israel, does Israel cry out to the Lord. They feel bad and they don't like the punishment. The problem is that misses the whole point. God wants Israel's hearts to turn to obedience and by wanting to enter the land, Moses says, you're, you're not obeying the Lord. I think real repentance in the situation would have been accepting the Lord's discipline and obeying in, in it, you know, as they're wandering for 40 years, recommit themselves to obedience, rather than trying to fix the consequences that they don't like. And then Moses gives a further reason they can't enter. Uh, if they try to enter the promised land, they're, gonna, they're going against the will of God and they're going to be defeated. Twice, as you see in the last verses of the chapter, Moses says, why the Lord is not among you. It was never about Israel's strength. God was the one who was going to enable them to defeat their enemies. So to think that Israel has the power in themselves to claim the promised land, that, that's doomed. He, Moses twice gives that statement, the Lord is not with you. Um, and then he gives the reason, since you have turned from following him, Israel, in all their weeping and confessing, uh, forgot the biggest piece of all. They had turned from following the Lord. They were being disobedient and rebellious. The answer to the, the, the judgment that Israel saw in Numbers 14 isn't to say, whoops, sorry God, mis mistakes were made, let's get back on track, let's get to the promised land. No, they needed to realize that dishonoring God was the fundamental thing. 
Israel was in such a rush to get out of the consequences that they didn't stop and ask, is God still with us? Does God approve of our plan? And as a reader, multiple times in this passage, you wish that Israel would just stop there, that they'd listen to Moses and be like, you're right, you know, just judgment of God, we need to repent, we, we don't need to go into the land. But they don't listen to Moses, their mediator, and it says they dared to go into the hill country. And then it has this interesting line, even though the Ark of the Lord's covenant and Moses did not leave the camp, and that's not just a throwaway line. At the end of Numbers 10, it says, Israel set out from the mountain of the Lord on a three-day journey with the Ark of the Lord's covenant traveling with them for those three days to seek a resting place for them. Meanwhile, the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you flee from your presence. When it came to rest, he would say, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousand of Israel. So the, leaving the ark behind and leaving Moses behind is equivalent to leaving the Lord behind. Moses says, Don't go in, the Lord's not with you. And it's as if Israel says, all right, that's fine. We'll get it ourselves this time. Uh, if God doesn't want to help us out here, we're doing it ourselves. And once again, they fail to remember the only claim they have to the promised land is God promised it to them. It's not theirs just because they're on the edge of it. And unsurprisingly, the text ends with them being defeated soundly. Israel tried to gain God's blessings apart from God. And you see that there's no true repentance because the same unbelief of the beginning of the chapter is still there. It's still unbelief. It just changed forms. Uh, you started out with unbelief that God could bring them into the land, and then they believed that they could enter the land without God. They're still not trusting the Lord and relying on him. Matthew Henry has a good application sentence here. It is folly to promise ourselves success in anything we undertake contrary to the mind of God. I think this, this passage is a really good picture of false repentance. Um, repentance without obedience is empty. The problem with our rebellion, with Israel's rebellion, is not what it does to us. It's what it does to God. Merely being upset with the consequences of our actions is a problem because we're not grieved by the ultimate issue, disobeying the Lord. Repentance is about turning from disobedience to obedience. It's not about turning from consequences to no consequences. And you see that very clearly in the text. They wanted to avoid the consequences, but they did not. So, that's Israel, and that's the longest part of this. Let's, this text contrasts Israel's unbelief with Caleb and Joshua. Um, in verses 5 through 9, uh, Israel's terrified by the report of the land, but Joshua and Caleb actually saw the land. They're not hearing it secondhand. They were there, and their reaction is completely different uh, from the rest of the nation. The two faithful witnesses, they, they say, have courage, and they repeat several times in verses 5 through 9 of this chapter, don't be afraid of the people. Don't be afraid of them. Notice, Caleb and Joshua had the same external information. They were in the same circumstances as the rest of the community. Uh, the earlier spies said that Israel will be devoured, but Caleb, even though he's in the same community, has the same information, he says, no, the nations are going to be devoured that are in the land. They don't crowd in fear. They don't complain. Why? If you look at the text, it says, uh, 
Don't be afraid of the people, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Caleb's confidence, Joshua's confidence, is not abstract. It's not foolhardy. God will bring them into the land. God will enable them to defeat the nations because he is with them. Unlike the rest of Israel that's so quick to forget God's promise uh, and his purpose for bringing them out of Egypt, Joshua and Caleb actually remember the promise, have faith in it, and actually it changes their behavior. To put it another way, uh, Caleb and Joshua's theology actually changes their responses to the situation. Remember, they had the same information the rest of Israel had at this point. Even better, because they were two of the scouts that went into the land. And they reasoned, God promised us this land, so if God wants to give it to us, the strength of the nations are irrelevant. God's sovereign not only over Israel, but also the nations. The nation's protection has been removed, they said. It is a faith-fueled courage. They knew God would keep their promise. And you have this contrast between Israel's unbelief and Caleb and Joshua's faith. And not only do they uh, call Israel to have confidence and courage, they also call out Israel's sin. Verse 9 says, only don't rebel against the Lord. They label Israel's fear and lack of trust in God's promise as rebellion. They call it for what it is, and we know how Israel reacted to that. They wanted to kill him, get him out of the way as soon as possible. But how does God interpret Caleb and Joshua's faith? In the midst of this, this central section where there's so much judgment on Israel, he actually rewards faithfulness. God doesn't just punish unfaithfulness, he rewards faithfulness. Um, in verse 24, it says, But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit and has remained loyal to me, I will bring him into the land where he has gone and his descendants will inherit it. And it's interesting, if you, we don't have time to go here tonight, but if you go to Joshua 14 and read uh, Caleb's recounting of this, this moment in Numbers, multiple times, Caleb is still talking about God's promise. Uh, three times, Caleb says, I was loyal to the Lord. Five times, Caleb mentions God's promise to him that God makes right here. Um, so the picture that's painted in Numbers 14 is, the majority of Israel is being disloyal and unbelieving, but there is this small group, Caleb and Joshua, who are being loyal to the Lord and having faith in God's promise. And it's a stark contrast. But there's one more character we have to look, look at in this, in this narrative before we close, and that's Moses. Um, and he has a very important part in the story as the mediator. And I don't have time to go into how it's a picture of Christ, but I would encourage you to meditate on that um, sometime this week. So you have this beautiful picture of what mediation look, looks like. But if you read, it's interesting to see what Moses does not plead. He doesn't go to God and say, you know, don't destroy us because you need Israel to fulfill your promises. Uh, he doesn't say, Israel did a lot of good things in the past. Please don't destroy them. We deserve something. How could you threaten that? No, he pleads two things. God's, uh, glory and God's character. The first thing, he emphasizes God's reputation among the nations. Um, and he says, uh, basically, the nations who have heard of your fame, if you destroy Israel now, uh, they're going to think less of you, less of God. Here we see even the purpose of Israel's is display God's glory. It, it says the nations who have heard of your fame. And that is a magnificent theme. 
the glory of God in Scripture, and we don't have time to go into it, but Psalm 96, 3, tell of, the God, tell of God's glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the people. It shows up throughout the prophets in the New Testament. That's what Moses pleads, your glory, your fame among the nations, God. Don't destroy Israel, not because Israel is righteous or because Israel is worthy, but because of your glory and because of your promise and because of your plan for the world. The tragedy in this text wouldn't be if God destroyed Israel, because he's totally just in doing that. The tragedy here would be if the other nations think less of God because he is infinitely worthy. And that is what Moses, as the mediator, pleads. Look at the Egyptians. They've seen the signs. If you destroy Israel now, Egypt's going to become kind of an anti-evangelist. They're going to say, you know, God couldn't even bring their people into the land. And so Moses pleads, God, don't damage your reputation among the nations, among Egypt. And then, interestingly, he actually pleads God's character. Uh, For those of you who have read Exodus, he quotes Exodus 34, where God reveals his attributes to Moses, his steadfast love. Um, And at the end, most significantly, Moses pleads God's faithful love. And this is about as close to a Valentine's Day message as this sermon will get. Um, But you have that word, uh, steadfast love, faithful love, chesed in the Hebrew, and it's God's covenant love. 250 times in the Old Testament, it's mentioned in the same breath oftentimes as uh, God's character and God's covenant. So Moses is pleading God's character. He's pleading his faithful love. He's saying, God, you've entered this covenant relationship with the nation. You've committed to doing them good. It's interesting, the Hebrew word chesed, it's not a feeling of love. It's a commitment to a covenant. It's a a commitment in this context that God is going to show mercy towards Israel because he's covenanted with them. And God, and Moses pleads specifically in light of that, God, let your power be magnified, pardon this people's wrongdoing in accordance with your chesed, with your faithful love, your covenant love. And God heard this plea from Moses on the people's behalf, and he does not destroy them. Even though he punishes them, even though Israel proved unfaithful, God remained faithful and gracious, even though the punishment was still severe. I think that's another important takeaway from this text. God is merciful to Israel, but not at the expense of his justice. And that's exactly what we see in Exodus 34. Uh, God is rich in mercy and steadfast love, but he will by no means acquit the guilty. This text is another good illustration of God acting out of his character, that tension between design justice and faithful love. God is faithful to his promises, but will also deal consequences when his people walk away from him. One final sort of question to ask of the text. The chapter sort of ends, you know, in a, a very sad place. You know, they get driven back. And the question you might have as the reader is, you know, has God rejected Israel Um, And then you have this great verses in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. The Lord instructed Moses, speak to Israel and tell them when you enter the land. That is an amazing, amazing way to follow up Numbers 14. When you enter the land. You, You might think reading Numbers 14, is Israel hopeless? Or to use biblical language, has Israel's unfaithfulness nullified the faithfulness of God? And the answer, Numbers 14, is no. When you enter the land, it's not a question. When you enter the land. Why is this significant? Because God keeps his promises. It's who he is. 
2 Timothy 2, when we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because we're great? Because of our belief? Because of our good works? No. Because he, God, cannot deny himself. It isn't, God's faithfulness to us is not because we're great. It's not because Israel was great that God's faithful to them. God's love is great and constant because God himself is great. There is discipline. We saw that in the text. There's punishment. God does not let the guilty go unpunished, but he is rich in forgiveness and faithful love. One final stop before we close. Paul says in 2 Timothy, um, the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So I think it's important, especially in the Old Testament, to reflect and think, how could someone reading Numbers 14 anticipate the coming of Christ? And I think there's two ways. The first, this passage demonstrates the need for the new covenant. Israel had the law at this point. They had a mediator. They had God dwelling among them, but they still rebelled and they still had unbelief. Even though they had the law, they didn't have the power in themselves to keep the law. Even though they had the law, the law didn't produce faith in them. Even though they had the law, it was still outside of them. It didn't bear the fruit of trust in the Lord's promises. And when you read the Old Testament again and again and again, God sends prophets to call out Israel for their unbelief and disobedience. And texts like this is why it's so amazing when you get to Jeremiah 31 and God says, I'm going to make a new covenant and it's going to be different. It won't be the covenant he made with Israel that he brought them, when he brought them out of Egypt. And God promises in Jeremiah 31 to write the law within their hearts. It, and in Numbers 14, you saw Joshua and Caleb pleading with Israel, like, please, like, have faith in the Lord. Um, but in Jeremiah, God says, that's not going to happen anymore. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they all will know me from the least to the greatest. You read Numbers 14 and you ache for the new covenant. You ache for God to write the law on Israel's hearts to give them the power to believe his promises. And the question is, how did God bring about that new covenant that he, that he promised? Matthew 26 gives the answer. Then Jesus took a cup and after giving thanks, gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the new covenant. It is shed for the forgiveness of sins. God is going to establish a new covenant, but it's going to be costly. The price is the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. The new covenant was not free. If, if you're a believer here and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and you have been set free from the curse of the law and you, have, you know the Lord and the law is written on your hearts, that was not free. Jesus had to bring it about through his blood. Why? Hebrews says the blood of goats and rams could not wash away sins, but Jesus' blood, through it, we have obtained eternal redemption. You read about Israel's unbelief and the wrath God poured out, uh, and, and you think, you know, you might think, I'm not Israel, but Romans 2 says, as many as have sinned without the law are going to perish without the law. As many as have sinned with the law are going to be judged by the law. And that is why the new covenant is so amazing. It's not just that God's going to write it on our hearts. It's that he's going to forgive our sins in Christ's blood. Jesus became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. There's a second way, I think, though, that Numbers 14 points us to Christ, and it's in Hebrews 3 and 4. Uh, it's one of the New Testament texts that looks back to Numbers 14 and uh, sort of applies it for us. 
the author of Hebrews looks back to Numbers 14 and sees it as a warning, a warning not just for Israel, but for all, all anyone who would read the New Testament. Uh, he sees Israel, even though they were redeemed from Egypt, even though they saw the signs in the wilderness, they still rebelled, and God swore in his wrath they wouldn't enter his wrath, his rest, I mean. In his wrath, they would not enter his rest. And the author of Hebrews came to the same conclusion we did, looking at Numbers 14. He says, Israel was not able to enter the rest because of their unbelief. And, and Hebrews turns it to us and says, you who are listening to this text, Numbers 14, to the Psalms, beware. Don't be like Israel. They were on the edge of the promised land, and they did not enter because of unbelief. And I think this anticipates this, this reality that you can hear the gospel, you can be as close to the kingdom, but if you do not believe, you will not enter the rest. Throughout the Psalms and the Prophets, it looks back to Numbers 14 and sees it as a warning for us, for everyone here, for everyone in this country, for everyone in the world who would hear the gospel. You can be as close to the promises of God, and if you don't believe them, it won't do you any good. And honestly, the, the promise of the land in Numbers 14, the promises throughout Scripture pale in comparison to the promise of forgiveness of sins in Christ's blood. There is no rest greater. So, I will end simply with what Hebrews 4 says. Let us make every effort to enter that rest, the rest Christ promises, so that we will not fall into the same pattern of disobedience, the pattern we see in Numbers 14 the question we have to ask ourselves is, uh, are, are we going to uh, be like Israel and fearful of man instead of fearful of God? Or are we going to be like Caleb, who had a different spirit, who was loyal to the Lord and his promises, and was blessed by the Lord for it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the encouragement this text gives us for belief. Thank you for the warning it gives us. Lord, I pray that we would not view our sins and our problems in life superficially. Lord, please let us ask those two questions. What do we fear and what are we actually believing when we're, when we're faced with sin or difficulty? And Lord, most of all, please help us all here to enter that rest through belief in Christ. Lord, let us not enter the same pattern of disobedience. Thank you that your character is always consistent and you always exalt yourself. I pray that we would be like Caleb. Help our unbelief continue to bear that fruit of belief in us. I pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.